Chapter Five, Part One of the Stones of Venice, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. The Stones of Venice, Volume Two by John Ruskin. Byzantine Palaces, Part One. The account of the architecture of St. Mark's, given in the previous chapter, has, I trust, acquainted the reader sufficiently with the spirit of the Byzantine style, but he has probably, as yet, no clear idea of its generic forms, nor would it be safe to define these after an examination of St. Mark's alone, built, as it was, upon various models and at various periods. But if we pass through the city, looking for buildings which resemble St. Mark's, first in the most important feature of incrustation, secondly in the character of the moldings, we shall find a considerable number, not indeed very attractive in their first address to the eye, but agreeing perfectly both with each other and with the earliest portions of St. Mark's, in every important detail, and to be regarded, therefore, with profound interest, as indeed the remains of an ancient city of Venice, altogether different in aspect from that which now exists. From these remains we may with safety deduce general conclusions touching the forms of Byzantine architecture, as practiced in eastern Italy, during the eleventh, twelfth, and thirteenth centuries. They agree in another respect as well as in style. All are either ruins or fragments disguised by restoration. Not one of them is uninjured or unaltered, and the impossibility of finding so much as an angle or a single story in perfect condition is a proof hardly less convincing than the method of their architecture, that they were indeed raised during the earliest phases of the Venetian power. The mere fragments, dispersed in narrow streets and recognizable by a single capital or the segment of an arch, I shall not enumerate, but of important remains there are six in the immediate neighborhood of the Rialto one in the Rio di Cafoscari, and one conspicuously placed opposite the great Renaissance palace known as the Vendramin Calgheri, one of the few palaces still inhabited and well-maintained, and noticeable, moreover, as having a garden beside it, rich with evergreens, and decorated by gilded railings and white statues that cast long streams of snowy reflection down into the deep water. The vista of canal beyond is terminated by the church of Santa Jeremia, another but less attractive work of the Renaissance. A mass of barren brickwork, with a dull leaden dome above, like those of our national gallery, so that the spectator has the richest and meanest of the late architecture of Venice before him at once. The richest, 
let him observe, a piece of private luxury, the poorest, that which was given to God. Then, looking to the left, he will see the fragment of the work of earlier ages, testifying against both, not less by its utter desolation than by the nobleness of the traces that are still left of it. It is a ghastly ruin, whatever is venerable or sad in its wreck being disguised by attempts to put it to present uses of the basest kind. It has been composed of arcades borne by marble shafts, and the walls of brick faced with marble, but the covering stones have been torn away from it like the shroud from a corpse, and its walls, rent into a thousand chasms, are filled and refilled with fresh brickwork, and the seams and hollows are choked with clay and whitewash, oozing and trickling over the marble itself blanched into dusty decay by the frosts of centuries. Soft grass and wandering leafage have rooted themselves in the rents, but they are not suffered to grow in their own wild and gentle way, for the place is in a sort inhabited. Rotten partitions are nailed across its corridors, and miserable rooms contrived in its western wing and here and there the weeds are indolently torn down, leaving their haggard fibers to struggle again into unwholesome growth when the spring next stirs them. And thus, in contest between death and life, the unsightly heap is festering to its fall. Of its history, little is recorded, and that little futile that it once belonged to the dukes of Ferrara, and was bought from them in the sixteenth century to be made a general receptacle for the goods of the Turkish merchants, whence it is now generally known as the Fondaco or Fontico di Turchi, are just as important to the antiquary as that in the year 1852 the municipality of Venice allowed its lower story to be used for a deposito di tabacchi. Neither of this, nor any other remains of the period, can we know anything but what their own stones will tell us. The reader will find in Appendix 11, written chiefly for the traveler's benefit, an account of the situation and present state of the other seven Byzantine palaces. Here I shall only give a general account of the most interesting points in their architecture. They all agree in being round-arched and encrusted with marble, but there are only six in which the original disposition of the parts is anywise traceable, namely those distinguished in the appendix as the Fondaco de Turchi, Casa Loredan, Casa Farsetti, Rio Foscari House, Terraced House, and Madonetta House and these six agree further in having continuous arcades along their entire fronts, from one angle to the other, and in having their arcades divided, in each case, into a center and wings, both by greater size in the midmost arches, and by the alternation of shafts in the center with pilasters 
or with small shafts at the flanks. So far as their structure can be traced, they agree also in having tall and few arches in their lower stories, and shorter and more numerous arches above. But it happens, most unfortunately, that in the only two cases in which the second stories are left, the ground floors are modernized, and in the others where the sea stories are left, the second stories are modernized so that we never have more than two tiers of the Byzantine arches, one above the other. These, however, are quite enough to show the first main point on which I wish to insist, namely, the subtlety of the feeling for proportion in the Greek architects, and I hope that even the general reader will not allow himself to be frightened by the look of a few measurements, for if he will only take the little pains necessary to compare them, he will, I am almost certain, find the result not devoid of interest. I had intended originally to give elevations of all these palaces, but have not had time to prepare plates requiring so much labor and care. I must therefore explain the position of their parts in the simplest way in my power. The Fondaco de Turkey has sixteen arches in its sea story, and twenty-six above them in its first story. The whole, based on a magnificent foundation, built of blocks of red marble, some of them seven feet long by a foot and a half thick, and raised to a height of about five feet above high water mark. At this level, the elevation of one half of the building from its flank to the central pillars of its arcades, is rudely given in figure four in the previous page. It is only drawn to show the arrangement of the parts, as the sculptures which are indicated by the circles and upright oblongs between the arches are too delicate to be shown in a sketch three times the size of this. The building once was crowned with an Arabian parapet, but it was taken down some years since, and I am aware of no authentic representation of its details. The greater part of the sculptures between the arches, indicated in the woodcut only by blank circles, have also fallen or been removed, but enough remain on the two flanks to justify the representation given in the diagram of their original arrangement. And now observe the dimensions. The small arches of the wings in the ground story, A, 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 measure in breadth from shaft to shaft, 4 feet 5 inches, interval B, 7 feet 6.5 inches, interval C, 7 feet 11 inches, intervals D, E, F, and so on. 8 feet 1 inch. The difference between the width of the arches B and C is necessitated by the small recess of the cornice on the left hand as compared with that of the great capitals. But this sudden difference of half a foot between the two extreme arches of the center offended the builder's eye, so he diminished the next one unnecessarily two inches and thus obtained the gradual cadence to the flanks, from eight feet down to four and a half, 
in a series of continually increasing steps. Of course, the effect cannot be shown in the diagram, as the first difference is less than the thickness of its lines. In the upper story, the capitals are all nearly of the same height, and there was no occasion for the difference between the extreme arches. Its twenty-six arches are placed, four small ones above each lateral three of the lower arcade, and eighteen larger above the central ten, thus throwing the shafts into all manner of relative positions, and completely confusing the eye in any effort to count them. But there is an exquisite symmetry running through their apparent confusion, for it will be seen that the four arches in each flank are arranged in two groups, of which one has a large single shaft in the center, and the other a pilaster and two small shafts. The way in which the large shaft is used as an echo of those in the central arcade, dovetailing them, as it were, into the system of the pilasters, just as a great painter passing from one tone of color to another repeats over a small space that which he has left, is highly characteristic of the Byzantine care in composition. There are other evidences of it in the arrangement of the capitals, which will be noticed below in the seventh chapter. The lateral arches of this upper arcade measure three feet two inches across, and the central three feet eleven inches, so that the arches in the building are altogether of six magnitudes. Next, let us take the Casa Loredan. The mode of arrangement of its pillars is precisely like that of the Fondaco de Turchi so that I shall merely indicate them by vertical lines in order to be able to letter the intervals. It has five arches in the center of the lower story, and two in each of its wings. The midmost interval, A, of the central five is six feet one inch. The two on each side, B, B, five feet two inches. The two extremes, C, C, four feet nine inches inner arches of the wings d d four feet four inches outer arches of the wings e e four feet six inches the gradation of these dimensions is visible at a glance the boldest step being here taken nearest the center while in the fodaco it is furthest from the center the first loss here is of eleven inches, the second of five, the third of five, and then there is a most subtle increase of two inches in the extreme arches, as if to contradict the principle of diminution and stop the falling away of the building by firm resistance at its flanks. I could not get the measures of the upper story accurately, the palace having been closed all the time I was in Venice but it has seven central arches above the five below, and three at the flanks above the two below, the groups being separated by double shafts. Again, in the Casa Farsetti, the lower story has a center of five arches and wings of two. Referring, therefore, to the last figure, which will answer for this palace also, 
The measures of the intervals are A. 8 feet 0 inches B. 5 feet 10 inches C. 5 feet 4 inches D and E. 5 feet 3 inches It is, however, possible that the interval C and the wing arches may have been intended to be similar for one of the wing arches measures five feet four inches. We have thus a simpler proportion than any we have hitherto met with, only two losses taking place, the first of two feet two inches, the second of six inches. The upper story has a central group of seven arches, whose widths are four feet one inch. The next arch on each side three feet five inches. The three arches of each wing, three feet, six inches. Here again we have a most curious instance of the subtlety of eye, which was not satisfied without a third dimension, but could be satisfied with a difference of an inch on three feet and a half. In the terraced house, the ground floor is modernized, but the first story is composed of a center of five arches, with wings of two measuring as follows. The midmost arches of the central group, four feet, zero inches. Outermost arch of the central group, four feet, six inches. Innermost arch of the wing, four feet, ten inches. Outermost arch of the wing, five feet, zero inches. Here the greatest step is towards the center, but the increase, which is usual, is towards the outside the gain being successively six, four, and two inches. I could not obtain the measures of the second story in which only the central group is left, but the two outermost arches are visibly larger than the others, thus beginning a correspondent proportion to the one below, of which the lateral quantities have been destroyed by restorations. Finally, in the Rio Foscari house, the central arch is the principal feature, and the four lateral ones form one magnificent wing, the dimensions being from the center to the side. Central arch, nine feet, nine inches. Second arch, three feet, eight inches. Third arch, three feet, ten inches. Fourth arch, three feet, ten inches. Fifth arch, three feet, eight inches. The difference of two inches on nearly three feet in the two midmost arches being all that was necessary to satisfy the builder's eye. I need not point out to the reader that these singular and minute harmonies of proportion indicate, beyond all dispute, not only that the buildings in which they are found are of one school, but, so far as these subtle coincidences of measurement can still be traced in them, in their original form. No modern builder has any idea of connecting his arches in this manner, and restorations in Venice are carried on with two violent hands to admit of the supposition that such refinements would be even noticed in the progress of demolition, much less imitated in heedless reproduction. And as if to direct our attention especially to this character, as indicative of Byzantine workmanship. 
the most interesting example of all will be found in the arches of the front of st mark's itself whose proportions i have not noticed before in order that they might here be compared with those of the contemporary palaces the doors actually employed for entrance in the western facade are as usual five arranged at a in the annexed woodcut figure five but the byzantine builder could not be satisfied with so simple a group and he introduced therefore two minor arches at the extremities as at b by adding two small porticos which are of no use whatever except to consummate the proportions of the facade and themselves to exhibit the most exquisite proportions and arrangement of shaft and archivolt with which i am acquainted in the entire range of european architecture in these minor particulars i cannot here enter but observe the dimensions of the range of arches in the facade as thus completed by the flanking porticos the space of its central archivolt is thirty one feet eight inches the two on each side about nineteen feet eight inches the two succeeding about twenty feet four inches small arches at flanks six feet zero inches i need not make any comment upon the subtle difference of eight inches on twenty feet between the second and third dimensions if the reader will be at the pains to compare the whole evidence now laid before him with that deduced above from the apse of Murano, he cannot but confess that it amounts to an irrefragable proof of an intense perception of harmony in the relation of quantities on the part of the Byzantine architects, a perception which we have at present lost so utterly as hardly to be able even to conceive it and let it not be said as it was of the late discoveries of subtle curvature in the parthenon that what is not to be demonstrated without laborious measurement cannot have influence on the beauty of the design the eye is continually influenced by what it cannot detect nay it is not going too far to say that it is most influenced by what it detects least let the painter define if he can the variations of lines on which depend the changes of expression in the human countenance the greater he is the more he will feel their subtlety and the intense difficulty of perceiving all their relations or answering for the consequences of a variation of a hair's breadth in a single curve indeed there is nothing truly noble either in color or in form but its power depends on circumstances infinitely too intricate to be explained and almost too subtle to be traced and as for these byzantine buildings we only do not feel them because we do not watch them otherwise we should as much enjoy the variety of proportion in their arches as we do at present that of the natural architecture of flowers and leaves any of us can feel in an instant the grace of the leaf group b in the next figure and yet that grace is simply owing to its being proportioned like the facade of st mark's each leaflet 
answering to an arch, the smallest at the root to those of the porticos. I have tried to give the proportion quite accurately in B, but as the difference between the second and third leaflets is hardly discernible on so small a scale, it is somewhat exaggerated in A. Nature is often far more subtle in her proportions. In looking at some of the nobler species of lilies, full in the front of the flower, we may fancy for a moment that they form a symmetrical six-petaled star, but on examining them more closely we shall find that they are thrown into a group of three magnitudes by the expansion of two of the inner petals above the stamens to a breadth greater than any of the four others, while the third inner petal, on which the stamens rest, contracts itself into the narrowest of the six, and the three under petals remain of one intermediate magnitude, as seen in the annexed figure. I must not, however, weary the reader with this subject, which has always been a favorite one with me, and is apt to lead too far. We will return to the palaces on the Grand Canal. Admitting, then, that their fragments are proved by the minute correspondences of their arrangement to be still in their original positions, they indicate to us a form, whether of palace or dwelling-house, in which there were universally central galleries or loggias, opening into apartments on each wing, the amount of light admitted being immense, and the general proportions of the building slender, light, and graceful in the utmost degree, it being, in fact, little more than an aggregate of shafts and arches. Of the interior disposition of these palaces there is in no instance the slightest trace left, nor am I well enough acquainted with the existing architecture of the East to risk any conjecture on this subject. I pursue the statement of the facts which still are ascertainable, respecting their external forms. In every one of the buildings above mentioned, except the Rio Foscari house, which has only one great entrance between its wings, the central arcades are sustained, at least in one story, and generally in both, on bold, detached cylindrical shafts with rich capitals while the arches of the wings are carried on smaller shafts assisted by portions of wall, which become pilasters of greater or less width. And now I must remind the reader of what was pointed out above, that there are two great orders of capitals in the world, that one of these is convex in its contour, the other concave, and that richness of ornament, with all freedom of fancy, is for the most part found in the one, and severity of ornament, with stern discipline of the fancy, in the other. Of these two families of capitals, both occur in the Byzantine period, but the concave group is the longest-lived, and extends itself into the Gothic times. In the account which I gave them in the first volume, they were illustrated by giving two portions of a simple curve, that of a salvia leaf. We must now investigate their characters more in detail, and these may be best generally represented by considering both families as formed upon the types of flowers, 
the one upon that of the water lily, the other upon that of the convolvolus. There was no intention in the Byzantine architects to imitate either one or the other of these flowers, but, as I have already so often repeated, all beautiful works of art must either intentionally imitate or accidentally resemble natural forms, and the direct comparison with the natural forms which these capitals most resemble is the likeliest mode of fixing their distinctions in the reader's mind. The one of them, the convex family, is modeled according to the commonest shapes of that great group of flowers which form rounded cups, like that of the water lily, the leaves springing horizontally for the stalk and closing together upwards. The rose is of this family, but her cup is filled with the luxuriance of her leaves. The crocus, campanula, ranunculus, and enemy, and almost all the loveliest children of the field are formed upon the same type. The other family resembles the convolvulus, trumpet flower, and such others in which the lower part of the bell is slender and the lip curves upwards at the top. There are fewer flowers constructed on this than the convex model, but in the organization of trees and clusters of herbage it is seen continually. Of course, both of these conditions are modified when applied to capitals by the enormously greater thickness of the stalk or shaft, but in other respects their parallelism is close and accurate, and the reader had better at once fix the flower outlines in his mind and remember them as representing the only two orders of capitals that the world has ever seen, or can see. The examples of the concave family in the Byzantine times are found principally either in large capitals, founded on the Greek Corinthian, used chiefly for the nave pillars of churches, or in the small lateral shafts of the palaces. It appears somewhat singular that the pure Corinthian form should have been reserved almost exclusively for nave pillars, as at Torcello, Murano, and St. Mark's. It occurs indeed, together with almost every other form, on the exterior of St. Mark's also, but never so definitely as in the nave and transept shafts. Of the conditions assumed by it at Torcello, enough has been said and one of the most delicate of the varieties occurring in St. Mark's is given in Plate 8, Figure 15. Remarkable for the cutting of the sharp thistle-like leaves into open relief, so that the light sometimes shines through them from behind, and for the beautiful curling of the extremities of the leaves outwards, joining each other at the top, as in an undivided flower. The other characteristic examples of the concave groups in the Byzantine times are as simple as those resulting from the Corinthian are rich. They occur on the small shafts at the flanks of the Fondaco dei Turchi, the Casa Farsetti, Casa Loredan, Terraced House, and the upper story of the Maronetta House. In forms so exactly similar that the two figures one and two in plate eight may sufficiently represent them all. They consist merely of portions cut out of the plinths or string courses 
which run along all the faces of these palaces by four truncations in the form of arrowy leaves figure one fondaco de turchi and the whole rounded a little at the bottom so as to fit the shaft when they occur between two arches they assume the form of the group figure two terraced house figure three is from the central arches of the casa farsetti and is only given because either it is a later restoration or a form absolutely unique in the byzantine period the concave group however was not naturally pleasing to the byzantine mind its own favorite capital was of the bold convex or cushion shape so conspicuous in all the buildings of the period that i have devoted plate seven opposite entirely to its illustration the form in which it is first used is practically obtained from a square block laid on the head of the shaft figure one plate seven by first cutting off the lower corners as in figure two and then rounding the edges as in figure three this gives us the bell stone on this is laid a simple abacus as seen in figure four which is the actual form used in the upper arcade of murano and the framework of the capital is complete figure five shows the general manner and effect of its decoration on the same scale the other figures six and seven both form the apse of murano eight from the terraced house and nine from the baptistry of st mark's show the method of chiseling the surfaces in capitals of average richness such as occur everywhere for there is no limit to the fantasy and beauty of the more elaborate examples in consequence of the peculiar affection entertained for these massive forms by the byzantines they were apt when they used any condition of capital founded on the corinthian to modify the concave profile by making it bulge out at the bottom figure one a plate ten is the profile of a capital of the pure concave family and observe it needs a fillet or cord around the neck of the capital to show where it separates from the shaft figure four a on the other hand is the profile of the pure convex group which not only needs no such projecting fillet but would be encumbered by it while figure two a is the profile of one of the byzantine capitals fondaco de turchi lower arcade founded on corinthian of which the main sweep is concave but which bends below into the convex bell shape where it joins the shaft and lastly figure three a is the profile of the nave shafts of st mark's where though very delicately granted the concession to the byzantine temper is twofold first at the spring of the curve from the base and secondly the top where it again becomes convex though the expression of the corinthian bell is still given to it by the bold concave leaves these then being the general modifications of byzantine profiles i have thrown together in plate eight opposite some of the most characteristic examples of the decoration of the concave and transitional types their localities are given in the note below and the following are the principal points to be observed respecting them 
The purest concave forms, one and two, were never decorated in the earliest times, except sometimes by an incision or rib down the center of their truncations on the angles. Figures four, five, six, and seven show some of the modes of application of a, a peculiarly broad-lobed acanthus leaf, very characteristic of native Venetian work. Four and five are from the same building, two out of a group of four, and show the boldness of the variety admitted in the management, even of the capitals most closely derived from the Corinthian. I never saw one of these Venetian capitals in all respects like another. The trefoils into which the leaves fall at the extremities are, however, for the most part similar, though variously disposed and generally niche themselves one under the other, as very characteristically in figure 7. The form 8 occurs in St. Mark's only, and there very frequently. Nine at Venice occurs, I think, in St. Mark's only, but it is a favorite early Lombardic form. 10, 11, and 12 are all highly characteristic. 10 occurs with more fantastic interweaving upon its sides in the upper stories of St. Mark's. 11 is derived in the Casa Loredan from the great lily capitals of St. Mark's, of which more presently. 13 and 15 are peculiar to St. Mark's. 14 is a lovely condition occurring both there and in the Fondaco de Torquay. The modes in which the separate portions of the leaves are executed in these and other Byzantine capitals will be noticed more at length hereafter. Here I only wish the reader to observe two things both with respect to these and the capitals of the concave family on the former plate. First, the life. Secondly, the breadth of these capitals as compared with Greek forms. End of section 11. Reading by Malone.